What would you say for someone wanting to get into the industry? Like, what would be the key points they should be focusing on right now? Ooh, uh, relationship building. Everybody wanna get the bag, but y'all really know what it's gonna take. Trying to figure out how to start now. Blue gems, gotta show you the way. Cause we top finance and amortizing and anything it takes to get real estate. We've been grinding up there, finding ways to get paid. Better hop on this web, cause we're dropping blue gems. JB dropping blue gems. AG dropping blue gems. New podcast, baby, tune in. We in this thing dropping blue gems. Let's go. Let's go. I'm so excited about this one. Um, so Aiden and I have had two episodes under our, our belt already. Um, this is the first one that we've had a, a guest on. Um, yeah, let's just uh, start off by introducing yourself. Tell us a little bit about you. And uh, yeah, just uh, awesome. knock it out. Awesome. Yeah, I'd love to break the ice. Thank you, of course, again for having me on as your uh pioneer guest. As far as who I am, my name is Christian Arce. I'm a uh, licensed loan originator here in Florida for Cross Country Mortgage, uh, part of the really, really awesome Manglardi team there. So um, pretty much just work with my best friend of over 17 years on his team. Um, the Manglardi name is a very well-known name um, in the Orlando and Central Florida area. Um, Michael Manglardi is a very prominent attorney. He started, uh, Martinez Manglardi, Diaz Arguez and Tejador. Um, and it's part of that whole family, you know, of, uh, very highly successful individuals who, um, have all done great in either real estate construction or anything like that. So, um, but that's pretty much it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Um, so one thing that I really, really want to get into for me personally, because I love mixed martial arts. Okay. Um, I, I trained Taekwondo as a kid, fell in love with it. Nice. And I was like, yo, this is so awesome, right? This, this is my like, jam. Not, not only from a physical standpoint, but from a mental standpoint. And I think we're going to talk a lot about mindset on this podcast. So like, what does it take every single day to like that mental fortitude to sure. go back into the gym, get your butt kicked, and then like, Tomorrow, wake up early, repeat. Like, yeah. Um, you know, it's like one of those things where you start, you know, go to the gym once, you may not necessarily see results. You go twice, still might might not see results. Go for a year and then look in the mirror and boom, all of a sudden you're seeing those results. So the consistency is key there. Um, Jiu-jitsu is definitely, you know, a form of martial arts that has helped me. Um develop a little bit more of a sturdier mindset when it comes to other aspects of my life. Um, with jujitsu, you know, you have to learn how to control your breathing and not freak out when somebody's smashing down on you pretty much. So um, after a while of getting beat up every day, you, you kind of toughen up and, For sure. you know, that, um, that discipline, that focus, that desire to, you know, look back on the mistakes you made and, how you can improve that the next time you spar with a guy so that you don't, you know, get caught in that same choke or that same lock. Um, it's always evolving and it's always something that really drives you to continue doing it and being better at it and sticking with it, you know, year after year, despite all the injuries, despite all the kind of like life, you know, it's like the perfect metaphor for it really. Um, but 
you know, that that discipline translates into, you know, other aspects with work, um, with block scheduling, with making sure you're, you know, you're always hitting your your daily tasks and um, also keeping your cool when, you know, things that aren't in your control get out of control. And, you know, you got to keep it cool and be the leader and take care of business and provide solutions. Love it. Love it. Um, so like touch base on a little bit more, like how it correlates directly with work. Like what parallels do you see with jujitsu and then work and like how you, you've really been able to develop those skills. So, you know, being consistent with drilling and training as much as you can, I go to jujitsu about five or six times a week. Boss. Um, <laughs> I'm usually there about six thirty AM. And, um, you know, I'm done about 7.30, quick shower, and then I'm ready. Because if you get through that, I mean, the rest of the day is pretty much easy. To it's going to be easy, right? Like a breeze. <laughs> it is. And um, not only do you feel great, is it a great workout? Your endorphins are running and all that stuff. Um, you just come out of the gate, you know, ready to attack your day and, you know, submit it to yeah. a degree in a way. Love you know? that. Um, but, um, you know, the, 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 as cliche as it sounds, the discipline um, the respect, the, the camaraderie with all the people there, um, that definitely translates into, you know, developing the same relationships with other people outside of that, you know, martial art and, um, just loving what you do, I guess. Yeah. I mean, they, they do say like, uh, win your morning, win your day. So I think that's like, it all starts perfect. in the morning. Yeah. Like you know? win your morning, win your day start off with the hard stuff. And then, like you said, it's just a coast or a breeze right after that. Yeah, man. I remember um, in Arnold Schwarzenegger's Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding, he always recommended you go in as early as you can. And there was a passage where he stated, you know, he's like, I'd get to the gym at 6 a.m. and there would be attorneys and doctors leaving already done with their workout by the time he got there. So um, it's definitely the way to go. You know, get your get your exercise in the morning. That way, the rest of the day can just be easy, yeah. ready for you. Yeah, I'm guilty of that. Like if I don't get to the gym early in the morning and I'm like, Hey, I'll get to it at like 10. And then like a, a meeting pops up or a call happens or like, I need to run some comps or whatever the case may be. And then next thing you know, it's like 1 PM. I'm like, ah, I need to eat real quick. And then it's 4 PM. Go. And then wife gets home and I'm just like, ah, it's 7 PM. And I never make it. So it in the first thing in the morning seems to work for me as well. So important. Yeah, for sure. So let's switch gears a bit into the the lending space. So yeah. you kind of talked about, you know, how you started, but what would you say for someone wanting to get into the industry? Like what would be the key points they should be focusing on right now? Uh, relationship building. Um, I had a, a lot of friends reach out to me when I first got licensed. And, um, you know, the general consensus was always, oh, that seems like a great side gig right. or something I can do to quickly make you know, some extra cash. And what most people don't realize is, yeah, you know, not only do you have to go through licensing, take your state, you know, take your state, take your state education, continuing education, take the state exam. Um, but once you're actually licensed, wh what you think? You need clients. Uh, yeah. Referrals <laughs> are just going to magically fall out right. of the sky. Right. <laughs> and as a new loan officer, super green, no experience, you know, very, um, very basic understanding of guidelines and stuff, you know, how do you distinguish yourself? How do you differentiate yourself to a big fish realtor that's had a relationship with their lender for over 10 years? And here you are, Mr. New Guy on the block trying to, you know, 
win people's business. Um, so the the most important thing is building relationships. It really is, you know, um, th- whether through social media, uh, your sphere of influence, um, you know, paid leads, whatever it is, or a combination of all three, or, or, or if not more, um, building relationships is going to be the key to that success. Oh yeah, I was I was going to um, say so. Like you and I met at our local real estate mm-hmm. meetup. Um, do you go to many like local real estate meetups around? Yeah. Are, you, are you constantly networking? And is that constantly one networking, way? constantly doing community outreach, constantly, you know, trying to have belly to bellies is what we, we like to call them on our team with as many connectors as we can. Um, you know, obviously for a lender, a, a big connector is a realtor. Um, usually somebody that's interested in a property will first reach out to their realtor, which is right. funny. It's actually kind of a little backwards, but um, usually they reach out to their realtor and then the realtor will be the one to connect them with, you know, their preferred lender or a lender or a set of lenders. But um, that's really the, you know, the key is is establishing those belly to bellies and trying to get as many as you can, you know, every day and build relationships. You know, I mean, I've got the podcast today, tomorrow I've got two belly to bellies. You know, there's another networking event on Thursday. Um, you know, Tuesday I'll be in Claremont. I mean, I'm just constantly out and about um, having sit downs and meeting people. So would you, would you spend more time on networking than actual learning in the industry with the new practices and everything going on? Like where would you spend the most of your time yeah. if you're a new lender? I would I would spend the majority of my time business doing business development. Um, but that's not to say you you need you can neglect your guidelines. I right. block schedule an hour of every day to specifically either review guidelines that you know we already have or read up on changes because guidelines change daily. People don't believe that, but I get 15, 16 emails a day of just things changing between all, all the guidelines and the different products. Um, so it's not something that should be neglected. Um, at the end of the day, not only is you know it's important to build relationships, yeah, but your knowledge of the guidelines, your knowledge of the loan products is really going to like set you apart from other lenders that may miss things and, and you know not catch certain things because they're not you know, they're not familiar with the guidelines. They don't have a good, strong grasp of the guidelines. So yeah, no, it definitely, it definitely shouldn't be neglected. Um, but I would say a good 75% of your time should probably be. Wow. Because once, once you get the client, you need to execute. So that's kind of the challenge between balancing the two. Well, um, if you're doing it all on your own, yes. But if you've got a team behind you that can facilitate um, a lot of the clerical stuff with the files, then that does free up a lot of your time to do more networking, be more available for clients and, and really build those relationships. You know, um, we have a production manager that develops our files. Then we have a processor that processes our files. So, you know, outside of the initial like consultation with the, with the client, um, you know, taking the app, collecting the documents, once all that's done, it's pretty much passed off to my staff and wow. I don't really, you know, I lock the loan, I lock the pricing, I update the clients and all the interested parties as to the, you know, milestones of the file. Um, But I really don't touch the file after that, as far as like clerical entering work, you know, 
So was that the whole org chart of a lending organization? Because I've only ever seen the lender, so I don't really yeah. know what goes on behind the scenes. But can you talk more about yeah. that process? Yeah. So our our particular team is is pretty stacked up as far as so what's the word I'm looking for? We have a lot of amenities, if you would, that would make it better to work with a team like us. For example, we have an internal ISA person. So how many lenders do you know are offering to follow up on your leads? You know, a lot of realtors come in and ask, hey, you know, can you get me new leads? Well, well hold on. What about all the leads you already have? Is anyone following up on those? Where, where are we at with those, you know, professional touches? Um, we have an internal ISA that will do the, those calls and follow ups and, you know, stay on top of everything. Um, Real again, quick, what's an ISA? What, what's it stand for? Explain it to. You're putting me on the spot. Uh, no, no worries, no worries, no worries. It's all good. Um, it's all. Good. I think it's internal. <laughs> yeah, I was sales like, oh, right over my head. Yeah, internal internal like, sales agents. Okay. So yeah. a lot of um, uh, pay for lead companies okay. will have an ISA type. Um, what's an example of a pay for lead company like a Zillow, like Boomtown, or something like that. So it wouldn't be like Zillow where you can be like, oh, your preferred lenders in the Orlando zip code. So kind of like SEO stuff Got where, it. you know, they create a platform, um, a website, you know, a landing site for you. And then based on the marketing budget and stuff and keywords and whatnot, the when people start searching for specific things, it pushes them towards your landing page. And then once they get to your landing page, you know, they they check out a listing or do whatever, and then they put in their information. And once we get at their information, it's like, hey, what's up? You know, and that that happens. I mean, if you don't reach out to that person within five minutes, I think you lose about 90% of wow. the I believe it. The, wow. the conversion within that first five. I mean phone call like right away. Like right away. Wow. Strike while it's immediately. Hot, you know. I mean, I'm talking I mean, not only does the system do the systems do like internal um text messages and emails, but no, nah, personal touch call right away. Even if you can't chat with the person, that's awesome. Hey, just wanted to introduce myself. Let's schedule something. Are you free tomorrow night or whatever, you know? Um, because if not, I'm telling you somebody else will come in and, and, and take Scoop it right out. Yeah. Early bird gets the worm. First to respond usually gets the business. Wow. So we, you can almost make an argument that a lender is kind of a, a marketing <laughs> a marketing person in a way because you're essentially just marketing your services to clients Dude, and then me, you have people working the back end. Let me tell you, man, I did uh, medical sales for about four years, radiology, right. pain management. And in a given day, I would visit 30, 40 offices, separate offices a day. Wow. I knew everyone by first name, lunch is here. You know, here's a box of cookies, here's some flyers and some pens, right? Send me your patients, send me your patients. Hey, how's the mom? You know, how was your weekend? Yeah, we can hang out. Happy hour. Cool. Whatever. And I mean, I did medical sales and I'd say 99% of the time I never talked about anything medical. Medical. Wow. Unless there was an issue. They had a problem. Then yeah, of course. Right. But, um, you know, I got out of that because I was like, I don't want to do the door knocking. I don't want to mm -hmm. do the, the, pave, the, the pounding of the pavement. Um, lo and behold, I right get back into to lending. It. Yeah, it's 100% commission. <laughs> referrals weren't falling out of the sky. So I do the same thing. I visit, you know, 15, 20 realtor offices, I drop off flyers, I drop off pens. Hey, let's grab a lunch. Hey, let me do a presentation for your, your team. 
you've got uh, three new realtors. Let's do a first time home buyer, you know, loan presentation so they they know how to, you know, what we do when we pre-qualify people and stuff. Just kind of give them enough information to be dangerous, but not enough that, you know, they put their foot in their mouths. But yeah, so it's it's literally the same thing. And I think in retrospect, it doesn't matter what business you're in, what you're selling, what service you're providing. You have to develop that business somehow through lead generation and referrals. Absolutely. You would say the same thing. In, in your business, I mean, the the few companies that I'm in, we're always focused on lead gen. It's the bread and butter. But I always thought as a lender, I'm always thinking of someone who is a numbers guy, who understands all the rules, <laughs> the interest rates, forecasting. But in reality, they're just kind of marketing a service yeah. to a bunch of clients and trying to well, hit as many as possible. I mean, just, just to, um, you know show my true colors. I failed algebra twice in college. <laughs> wow. So numbers guy, I would, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, Hey Christian, do you think you're going to be a loan officer and do That's math wild. every day? I would have been like, no, no. Yeah. I would have been like, no, I'm going to do something where I'm giving a speech in front of 50,000 people right. writing essays. I mean, I words, English speaking, all that stuff. Good numbers. You know, I wasn't bad at it, but I mean, wasn't like super strong. Right. Um, but mortgages is totally different. You know, like, um, Staying on top of market fluctuations, knowing what's going on, um, understanding interest rates and points and, you know, all that is, is I've got a strong grasp of it now. But yeah, 10 years ago, if you would ask me. That's crazy. Doing numbers, I probably would have been like, no. Yeah, that, that's what I really enjoyed it when every time that you and I talk and in comparison to other lenders, you were just like always on top of it. I always felt safe when I talked to Christian, you know, versus like. Not, not only safe, but always reliable. If if I contact you, you're like, hey, I can't get to you right now. I'll, I'll talk to you in five minutes if if you're not available, you know, and then boom, five minutes rolls around. He's calling me. He's texting me, answering every single question. So um, I think that goes a long way. Just like you said, being on top of the guidelines, being reliable, being available. I mean, yeah, you're crushing it, man. Well, I appreciate that. You know, at the end of the day, um, this buying a home is probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest purchase most people will make in well, their lives. And you're dealing with a lot of responsibility. People are making decisions and, you know, financial moves with saved money. I mean, maybe they may have been saving money their whole life. And, um, you know, I want to treat it like it's my money, like it's my investment, like it's, you know, I wouldn't do it if, if it was mine. So, right. Um, well, you know what I mean? Like I, I'm going to protect your investment by giving you sage advice so that you don't make a bad investment. Yeah. It's a precious time for some people. It's very yeah. intimate. It, it can be emotional. I know when we were just finding <laughs> our, 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 our primary residence and like putting in offers and falling in love with a property and then losing out, it can be really emotional. Very emotional. You know, so uh, having a good lender that can guide you through those things is super helpful. Uh, yeah. And I mean, um, you know, in that same in that same regard, having a good realtor too is equally as important. Absolutely. Um, somebody trustworthy that goes to bat for you, um, helps you negotiate, you know, helps you look out for things in the inspection and, and, and guides you through the process. And um, it, it is definitely more of a team thing. You know, like my partners and I tend to be friends, you know, more than anything else. And yeah, we do business together, but we're real with each other and we're friends and, you know, we care about each other. And, We've developed really strong relationships over the years because of that. So like when you're looking for, uh, this is just a yeah. curious question. So when, when you're looking for 
other realtors to work mm-hmm. with. Like, how do you identify one that you're like, hey, this is awesome. He or she has it down and I want to do business with this person. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we have geoscaping programs where we can see um, the numbers that a lot of realtors, you know, uh, do throughout the year. So it's information that's pretty readily available. And, um, you know, we we target you know, specific sale amounts and, oh, very and cool. you know, now we target, right? but take what we can, you know, and at the end of the day, a relationship is a relationship. Even if you're a newer realtor, um, you know, getting your feet wet, if you've got the drive to become, you know, a big time real estate mogul, then I want to be part of that journey with you. I want to help you, you know, get you there, support you and, and, you know, be a part of that with you and help you grow along the way because we've all been there. We've all been at the bottom and, and, you know, some of us have had people come along, take us under our wings. Others have had to do it on their own with, you know, grit and, and fight. And, um, it, 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 we won't turn anyone away. Sure. You know, as far as like relationships are concerned. Yeah. That makes sense. And then what would be the, ideal client for you so we talked about <laughs> we talked about realtors right they bring you clients yeah, but yeah but if i'm a client what can i do to make my lender's job easier absolutely uh have an 800 credit score there you have go. a ton of money ton of money saved up, account. and have a, a a stable income there you go you know, w2 um, <laughs> preferred you, yeah i mean even self-employed you know um as long as you don't you know crush your income by claiming too much ex- too many expenses every year but um Ultimately, you know, yes, the ideal picture perfect golden egg would be an 800 credit score, you know, 20% down or more plus your closing costs and then a nice, you know, six figure salary every year. But I'll tell you that of probably every 20 or 30 applications I take, you're lucky to find one or two of those people. Mm-hmm. You know, um, most people are working with credit scores between six and 700 and, you know, minimum down and, um, you know, Decent, you know, middle, middle average income, if you would, you know, so, um, but eh, still get it done, you know. And then aside from just their numbers on paper, what can they do beyond that to make your job better? So from a paperwork standpoint, easier, easier. So that's one that's getting yourself ready. Right. And honestly, you should be shooting for that anyway. That yeah. should be everyone's goal to have a good credit score and, and continuously earning good income and be bankable and in saving, a way. right? Because, yeah. you know, even if buying a house isn't your goal, like you still want to be as prepared as possible for whatever else you want to do later on down the, the road, open a business, take out a business loan, buy a car, whatever. So um, as far as what the client can do to make my life easier, though, as simple as it sounds, send me the paperwork. If I ask you for a document, just send it to me. Right. You're asking us to let you borrow $300,000, you know, it's a lot if of I want to see a pay stub, man, send me a pay stub. Yeah, that's very and true. And send it to me right away. Yeah. Don't like wait, you know, like, because look, the quicker we get to review the documentation, the quicker we can get back to you with a confident answer as to whether you qualify or not. You know, you can put whatever you want on paper as far as what your income is. We're going to check that against your pay stubs and your W-2s. And if it doesn't match up, you know, we're going to recalculate that based off the way we have to calculate your income. And it's going to be based off of your, your, your paperwork. So, um, send, send the lender your paperwork. 
you know, the right away pay stubs, W2s, bank statements, you know, 401k, whatever, whatever you're using to qualify with, the quicker you get it into the lender's hands, the quicker you'll be pre-approved and confidently shopping and making offers. Can we walk through that process at a high level? So if you get someone's paperwork, what's the first thing you're doing? I know you're calculating income. Then you're looking at debts, you're looking at reserves. So yeah. what are kind of the the things you're looking for when you're going through that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, it, it depends on whether you're salaried, commission-based, whether you're an hourly worker, whether you're part-time, full-time, whether you own your own business. You know, there's a lot of people that make um, income off of dividends and interest and stocks and pensions, social security. So really, in general, what it when it boils down to income is you know, one, calculating an average monthly income for you. And two is, you know, establishing stability mm-hmm. of that income. And three is establishing beyond a reasonable doubt the continuation of that income. Um, so, you know, we're going to look at your most recent 30-day pay stubs. We may have to look at your, you know, year-to-date pay stubs for the final, the most previous two years. Um, we're going to look at your W-2s and it all has to make sense. It all has to kind of, you know, match and you know, add up. Um, and then for self-employed, if for self-employed, you're looking at yeah, tax returns. That's yeah. So for that. self-employed, we're going to be looking at your tax returns, schedule E's, schedule E's, you know, schedule, you know, schedule E's for rental income, K1 if you're a partnership, um, schedule C if you're a sole proprietor. Um, and it's going to be based off of your net income. Right? And now are you able to add anything back in? So and I've add heard- depreciation and, you know, a few other things back in miles driven and stuff. Um, non-cash expenses to put it simply some things like that but ultimately you know like a lot of business owners shoot themselves in the foot when they claim their taxes you know yeah it's great you made 200k last year but you wrote 175,000 of it off in expenses so really on paper you made 25k for the year and when you divide that out by 12 for 12 months in a year doesn't add up to a lot of income after we have to cover all your debts plus account for a new mortgage payment right um, there are niche options to, to help with that, but you know, if your goal is to be a homeowner and you're a business owner, you may have to just bite the bullet, you know, claim, claim your income for a year or two, you know, yeah, show some income. May, yeah. You may have to pay some, some taxes for that, but qualify for your house and then go back to, you know, claiming your taxes, however you feel comfortable after the fact. So sometimes you have to have those hard conversations with business owners that don't understand why, but you know, we can't just arbitrarily go off of what you say you make. And then what about the Schedule E and rental income? Yeah. Because that could get even more complex if you own rental properties and if you're claiming rental income on your taxes versus a lease. And I mean, it can get complicated if the way you claim that rental income comes out as a loss. Right. Right. Um, if, if in the way you claim it, it's coming out as positive income, then that's supporting income we can add to your application. But again, if you're claiming it as a loss to avoid having to pay high taxes, then that loss can and will be counted against your debt to income ratio on the application. Assuming you can't add back in anything to offset it. Um, so if if you had a loss calculated, that would be already taking into account any add that backs. could be added back in. Got it. Got it. Because you can have a tax loss, but then add in depreciation to offset that loss yeah, sometimes. Add in depreciation, HOA, you can add in insurance, you can add back in um, interest paid and stuff. Um, but again, if you know, 
if in the way that you claim the rest of the expenses, it comes out totaling a loss, then, you know, that loss will be counted against you. And then for a new, a new property, mm-hmm. say you're going into a multifamily or you're going into yeah. an investment property, how are you calculating that income? Because there, obviously there's no tax returns yet. Mm-hmm. So the, that income is calculated the same way. There's no difference as far as how the income is calculated. Now, if for some reason, or if the the client is buying a multi-unit property, um, one of the cool things about FHA and VA is you can actually get into a multi-unit property doing the minimum three and a half percent down as long as you live out of one of the units as a primary residence. Um, you can even use the appraiser's fair market rental value for those other units as qualifying income on your application to help you qualify. So that is something that is really cool with, you know, those particular products. Um, but, you know, works the same way on a regular investment loan too. Mm-hmm. You know, we can add in whatever the appraiser's fair market rental value is for that property as, you know, future rental income as qualifying income on the application to help you qualify. Do you see a lot of uh, homeowners u- utilizing the three three and a half percent FHA loan yeah. on multi-family properties? Um, I've had a few people try, but with the, you know, higher payments, higher loan amounts and stuff tends to be a little more difficult to qualify. Yeah. Gotcha. But it's doable for sure. Yeah. I know this is something I've done it. Yeah. Yeah. He's done. That was my first uh, property was a duplex and I lived in one side, did three and a half percent down and I was able to use 75% of the rents to give me basically another 80K of purchasing power. That I wouldn't have had in my DTI. Exactly. Um, there are some things that I wasn't a huge fan of with FHA, and I know that the down payment is is one of the big things people talk about. But you have that upfront premium, mm-hmm. kind of that uh, mortgage insurance, and then it, it never goes away, from my understanding, for the life of the loan. Yeah. So there's two um, there's two insurances that FHA charges. the The first one is the upfront mortgage insurance premium. Um, that's actually financed throughout the life of the loan. So yeah, they call it an upfront premium, but you're financing that, you know, uh, I think it's 2.75% or whatever it is on top of the loan. Now here's the deal is FHA is a government backed loan. They give us a little more wiggle room on lower credit scores. They give us a little more wiggle room on debt to income ratio. Maybe someone who's not making as much and has a little bit higher debt can still qualify for a home, right? But FHA's way of saying, hey, we'll let you have all these great benefits, but we're going to charge you a little premium is that upfront mortgage insurance premium. Got it. Um, Yes, you do still have to additionally, on top of that, pay your monthly mortgage insurance um, unless you put 10% down on an FHA. If you put 10% down on an FHA, you only have to pay PMI for the first 11 years and then it falls off. Or once you hit 20% equity in the property, you refinance into conventional and then, you know, I imagine most people don't do the 10% because it's more attractive to go conventional at that point. Most people, assuming you can qualify, like, uh, like in my scenario. Yeah, right. Because okay. if you can go conventional, say you're doing the product, not for a credit score or income standpoint, just, just to get into a multifamily, mm-hmm. because 
the way I understand it is if you go from FHA to conventional on a multi-unit, your your LTV shoots, you know, way down and you got to put more up front. Yes. Um, versus FHA. So that's why right. it was so attractive for me. It wasn't an income credit situation. It was more of just that LTV. Right. It's like 15% down. Right. For, for a duplex. For a duplex going Versus 3%. Right. Yeah. So huge difference from, yeah. from an ROI standpoint. 100%. Um, it's a good strategy for a beginner investor. Somebody wanting to get their feet wet who may not have 10, 20, 30% to put down and, and really go all out. Um, it, it's, it's a great, it's a great strategy. And it's actually something I talk to a lot about people with, you know, that, um, maybe don't qualify right now, or maybe they don't qualify for as much as they wanted to, you know, Hey, why don't we look at USDA? You know, mm-hmm. it's 0% down, you cover your closing costs. This doesn't have to be your forever home, you know, live in it for a year or two, rent it out you know, or sell it if the market goes up, you know, now you use that proceeds to pay for a bigger down payment on your next house. Right. Or if you turn it into a rental, well, now you just become a landlord and a, you know, home, new homeowner in the same day. So, um, you know, at least giving the client that outlet or option. that idea, that option to explore is, um, is a great way to keep them interested because why do you want to keep on paying rent? Right. You know, even if even if you don't want a house and you just want to, you know, you're cool with living in a condo the rest of your life, buy your own condo. At least it's yours and you're building equity towards it. And if the market, you know, goes up like it recently did, you can sell it and make a ton of profit. Let's break that down a bit, because I think what we're seeing now is we have one, an affordability issue and we're having an increasing amount of renters. So what can people be doing to get out of renting in, in the short term? Like what, what would be your advice for yeah. someone running right now? So I'm um, putting a plan together, you know, speaking to a lender right off the bat, speak to a lender. Even if you can't get qualified Have them today. pull your credit. Let's take a look at everything. Let's take a look at your income. Let's take a look at how much you got saved. Let's take a look at um, your credit, right? And see what you, where you're at right now. Because based off of where you're at right now and where you want to be and what you want to accomplish with your home purchase, I'll tell you what you need to do. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if that, you know, that can entail anything from credit repair to, you know, planning to get a better paying job or, you know, budgeting for how much you need to save to cover your minimum down payment and your closing costs on the size of the purchase you want to do, you know, and it's really helpful. You know, I've helped people with credit repair that have turned it around in six months and said, hey, Christian, you know, uh, I've done credit repair. We've got you know, 10, 15 K saved up. I think we're ready. And then they end up closing and it's really, really cool. Wow. Cause you can build that relationship with them from you know, way on and be a bigger part of that. And not only did you help them get a house, but you helped them bump their credit score from 550 to a 700. And they probably wouldn't have, it probably would have taken them years to do it on sure. their own. If they ever, you know, the truth of the matter is, is, I mean, I was there, you know, uh, I didn't make the best decisions out of college, defaulted on loans. You know, I had to learn and get out of it and clean my stuff up. But if I didn't have somebody give me a plan and tell me exactly what to do, I would have been chipping away at it forever and making very little to no progress. And so do you facilitate the credit repair through another company or, yeah. or how does that work? So we have access to simulators that can manipulate um, effects on credit scores from like hypothetically paying things down. You know, so say if the, the client has three credit cards in a car, well, what if you pay a thousand bucks down on each one, what does that do to your score? We can manipulate that in the simulator 
and figure out, okay, how much exactly do they need to pay down on which accounts to get their score up to X, Y, or Z. Um, if it's, you know, one of those situations where we're just seeing a lot of derogatory remarks, lots of things in collections, charge-offs, you know, closed accounts, lots of late payments, that's just going to be straight up, you know, credit repair. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a ton of stuff you can do on your own, obviously. You can you can work on this, dispute all your derogatory remarks, you know, do all the time, work on it yourself. Or you could just pay a company, you know, 100 bucks a month, whatever it is, to just do all those disputes and everything for you. Um, personally, I, I wouldn't have had the direction to do it myself or, mm-hmm. you know, the time. So I would have just paid somebody to do it six, eight months, boom, you know, credit scores up a hundred bucks. They give you a, a more specific detailed plan because um, they are actually licensed repair specialists. Whereas we're just very, we're very well versed in credit because we right. look at reports all day and we have access to these same simulators. Um, but for more severe cases, yeah, you're definitely looking at, you know, a solid six months to possibly a year of credit repair, depending, or if not more, depending on the severity of, of your, your credit and the, you know, the availability of disposable funds for you to start tackling some things down. Awesome. Awesome. So with your experience, you know, how how long have you been doing this? So four years, four years. Yeah. Loving it, huh? Loving it. Awesome. This is, I found my career. I'm stuck. I'm a mortgage guy now. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Love to hear it though. So um, in, in your experience, uh, you work with many investors or is it mainly just on the residential side? I, I work a lot with um, residential, for, you know, first time home buyers, primary, second homes, but I've done quite a, quite a few investments. So, so with the investors that you do work with, are you seeing any commonalities of the ones that are having tons of success? And the ones that are having tons of success, like what are they doing differently than the other investors? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the the successful investors have a good team on their side. They have a good financial planner, they have a good realtor, and they have a good lender. That's really the main difference. Um, they have a financial planner that's helping them figure out, you know, where to invest, what to do. Um, they have a good lender. That's, you know, keeping, keeping the client up to date on different products, different things, you know, different types of loans that they could be doing and using depending on what their goals are. And then obviously a good realtor to go to bat on the negotiations, find the right properties and, and be cohesive, you know, with all that. Uh, honestly, I think that's the, the biggest difference there. Um, you know, you have a lot of people that do the, the one year hack too, which is pretty cool. Um, you know, they'll purchase a home, live in it for a year or two, and then, you know, maybe, maybe they get a job somewhere else, or, you know, maybe they want to turn it into a rental and move to a new primary. And, you know, they keep on taking advantage of the, the first time home buyer, you know, 5% down on a conventional or three and a half percent down on an FHA, um, and kind of keep that rolling year after year. So you can do that as many times as you want the 5% down. Yeah, I mean, uh, conventional is five percent down for non-first time home buyers. You can only have one FHA at a time, um, but you can have multiple conventional loans. Now, I've heard different stories around because I'm going through this mm-hmm. now around getting out of an FHA and potentially doing a second FHA. I've heard the hundred mile rule. I've heard different rumors around FHA. Yeah. So, the, how would that work after a refinance? The hundred mile rule is specifically when you want to use rental income on an FHA property. Mm. So if you have an FHA property that you're making rental income on, 
that property has to be at least a hundred miles away from mm, your, makes your new property. Understood. Now, conventional doesn't have a specific distance requirement, but it has to make sense to an underwriter. Mm-hmm. You're not going to buy a primary residence conventional and then buy a second home conventional, you know, half a mile down the road in the same neighborhood. Right. So it's just all a matter of you know being reasonable with, with and making sure it makes sense to an underwriter. So then going back to that that FHA point, if you are someone that has an FHA loan now and you refinance into a conventional investment property loan, could you then go and get another FHA? Yeah. Without the 100 miles. Yeah, yeah, you could you could be selling a home that's got an FHA loan and start a new FHA loan. Oh, and wow. as long as the existing loan closes before the new one is funded, you're good. Now, will an underwriter, you know, Going back to the making sense part, is an underwriter going to grill me on, okay, I bought a duplex FHA, now I want to buy a quad as my third property. Like, okay, this, is this guy really using it to get into a home or just building a portfolio? Because the premise should be that you're moving into kind of a first-time home buyer. Yeah. So like ultimately, you know, the underwriter can't control what the reasons are that mm. you're moving. You know, maybe your family got bigger. Um, maybe you're not happy with the neighborhood anymore. Maybe you have buyer's remorse. What, whatever the reason right. is, you know, um, who are the underwriters to say right. at that point? Um, they're more so looking at just the feasibility of the loan itself and making sure that, you know, you're up to par with the income credit and all that. Basically. Yeah. So it's not really a first time buyer, right? You You can continue to repeat that. Yeah. Right. I yeah. took it quite literally. Like yeah, so, it's only one time. Right. So the the specific definition of first-time home buyer is you haven't owned property. And by own property, that basically translates to you you either haven't had your name on title or your name on a mortgage note in the past three years. If you've had your name on a mortgage or your name on a title in the past three years, then you're not considered a first-time home buyer, which automatically re- relegates you to five percent down on conventional. FHA is always three and a half percent down, no matter what. That's so, the minimum wow. requirement. In you, Aiden's case, um, is he going to have to wait three years before he can? No, you can buy again. You know, if you don't have an FHA, you can get into another FHA for three and a half percent down. Or if you go conventional, you would have to put five percent down on a mm. primary residence because you're not a first-time home buyer. So that three percent for conventional goes away. That is strictly for. Got it. Home buyers. Now, but the FHA would still be there. Right. Now you sell your home, three years go by. Now you can get back into a conventional for 3% down as a first time home buyer. Wow. Yeah. The FHA thing is really intriguing to me because, in theory, I can go and buy a quadplex after refinancing out. Mm-hmm. But my concern is that the underwriters are going to be asking a lot of questions on like what my intentions are. No. But as long as you're no, let rules. me know when you're ready to do that. <laughs> I was going to say, well, but, you guys um, link up that's that a twofer happens. right there. <laughs> so no, I mean, you know, that that's strategizing. There's right. sometimes people will call me and say, hey, I want to do this and I want to do this, and I'll look at their credit and say, hey, you already got an FHA. You'd have to refinance, refinance. out of this one to a conventional. Now you can do redo an FHA. Um, so it, it all depends on the goals, the, the financial objectives of the person and what they already got going on and their credit, their credit will reveal, their credit report will reveal all that to me and right. allow me to make those suggestions and give them those different options. Now, one, one interesting thing, cause, cause you, you just hit on it now and, and, and I was going to ask it anyway, but you talked about the credit report and mm-hmm. having 
a mortgage on there which would reflect your DTI. But let's say you are a partner on a real estate deal where you are not on the mortgage. How would that impact your your DTI? So if you're not on the mortgage... Well, you have the rental income from the partnership and the real estate deal. So you're not on the mortgage, but you have you're making income from the rental property. We would have to show that you're not on the mortgage. The underwriters would probably ask, "Hey, you know, where's he's got rental income? What where's the where's the property?" Um, so like the for example, the mortgage is in your partner's name. So we we would need a copy of the mortgage statement or a copy of the note that shows that, you know, got it. his name, the loan number, the address, all that. Are you on the title on this one? No, just curiosity because like let's no, say I was asking for you. Oh, oh, gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. So hypothetically, you know, um, if if I'm not on mortgage and I am on title, would that suffice enough to show to the underwriter, hey, look, that's where this so if you're income's not, coming from. If you're not on the mortgage, you don't have any financial responsibility to the note. And if you're not on the mortgage, it's not going to come up on your credit report. Kind of right. like um, a husband and a wife, for example. You know, we may do the loan just under the husband's name, but they're both going to be on title. But the wife has nothing to do with the loan at all. She has no financial responsibility to it. We didn't use any of information to qualify, nothing like that. So, yes, you can do it. Um, but I'm sure the underwriter would want to confirm and verify that you are not, in fact, on that mortgage. Mm-hmm. They would want to confirm and verify that you do not have that additional debt. And that's fine. Yeah. But you can use, I, I would still be able to use the income from that property. I don't see why not, especially if you're claiming it on your taxes. Right. That's what it matters. That's what yeah. matters. I, I guess I just thought that the underwriters would say, hey, you're claiming this income and you have this mortgage backed by that income. You know, well, I mean, you should technically you're paying half of it, probably based on the partnership structure and how it's going. Well, and, and you know, think about it. It'd be in the same sc- scope if the property was paid off. Mm, true. There's true. no mortgage on it. It's paid off. Wait, we bought this property cash. Okay, cool. You can count the income, but there's Still no count debt. the income as long as you're claiming it, you know? Very true. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. 100%. It's a good question. I've never been asked that one before. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I love... On the spot today. Yeah, I'm in that... Sh- I'm in I think that they're trying to stump me. Multiple times. Uh, so, <laughs> with partnerships. He's in that boat. I'm in the FHA quadplex boat. Like, I, we, we both are... Think very interested to get you on because we have very relevant questions because yeah. we're going to be planning some some things in the near future. Awesome. Um, and then kind of kind of going back to the investor versus retail mm-hmm. question, what what can an investor be doing to be a better client for a lender? Because I've heard varying opinions on whether lenders like working with investors because a lot of them go rate shopping, a lot of yeah. them are looking, a lot of them are focused only on the numbers and they take the emotions out of it, which can kind of get the relationship side a little fuzzy. So I was curious on your thoughts there. Yeah. So um, ultimately, investment loans are priced higher than a primary would. Um, You know, the second homes are now going to be pretty similar to investment rates. There was a recent loan level pricing adjustment. Um, But I, I think what it really boils down to for an investor is one, don't go into an investment loan putting the minimum down is 15%. Yeah, it's, you know, it may seem attractive, but if you're rate sensitive at 15% down, your rate's going to be the worst mm-hmm. and you're still paying PMR. Now, 20% down, your rates get a little bit better and you're foregoing private mortgage insurance. 
at 25% down on an investment loan, your rates get the best. And again, you're foregoing mortgage insurance. So one of the biggest mistakes I think most investors make is not putting that full 25% down and really maxing out the, you know, the rate, the, the best rate they can get and, and getting rid of that, that mortgage insurance and taking a nice chunk out of the, the principal of the loan to begin with. Um, talk about maximizing your profit and, you know, making it the best deal for you, then that's really where investment loans start to shine for most people. Um, and it's something you should consider, especially if you're rate sensitive, you know, meaning your credit and income is going to be hit for some loan level pricing adjustments. What would you say is someone that's rate sensitive? Someone that's rate sensitive is just, just paying, that. Paying like, attention to the yeah, right. Hey, I want oh, this rate. Oh, got oh it. you know, Sorry, I thought you meant like they would be impacted from a pricing adjustment based on the the scaling ma- matrix. So, pricing is difficult, you know, uh, especially with how volatile the market's been lately. We've had pricing adjustments daily, sometimes multiple pricing adjustments daily. Um, the only thing you can do is be upfront and prepare the people you're working with as to what's going on. Hey, guys, look, we're in a really volatile you know, time with the beginning of the year, rates are going up aggressively. And the sooner we can lock you in, the better you'll be. The longer we let rates go at this point, the more risk we run of you locking something less than, you know, ideal from what we could have locked yesterday or the day before. Um, Now, in retrospect, you know, rates are still historically low. Even a four or 5% is still a pretty darn good rate. Um, yeah, we're not at the two and a halfs and the two percents anymore. And I think that spoiled quite a few people. Mm-hmm, but for sure. historically speaking, a four or five percent is still a great rate. And on an investment loan, it's still a great rate, too. And you still have the option of buying points, you know, which a lot of investors do to 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 further buy down your interest rate. You, you see investors buying down yeah. rates a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, what would you say, like, if, if you had 10 investors, how many would buy Rates down. Probably everyone. Really? Yeah. And to they, some degree. And they plan on holding these properties clearly, right? They're because that's whenever you you start to see. Yeah, that if you're to planning shine. on selling the property in a few years, then it may not make sense to invest in the points, depending on how long the recoupment period is for that investment. Right. There's a break-even somewhere. There's a break-even, right? You you, you divide um you divide the amount of points, the, the cost of the points by the savings. Right. The savings would be the difference between uh, your principal and interest at the rate with no points minus the principal and interest at the rate with points. So you take that difference, you divide it by your amount and, you know, hey, it'll take me 60 months of saving $80 a month to recoup that, you know, $4,000 investment. And then everything after those 60 months is... Is savings, right. And then at that point, you decide, okay, is it worth it for me to invest this extra four or 5K in points? You know, if I'm only going to, if I'm going to be selling the property in three years or whatever. Right. But your lender is going to help you, you know, strategize and give you those options and decide what's best or help you decide what's best for you. So we talked briefly about the current environment, but where would you say if you were to summarize the what's going on in the market today and, and where you see it going in the near future. Yeah. Crystal ball. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> um, I think common sense dictates that eventually we're going to hit a point of equilibrium. Um, I don't, I don't foresee a huge market crash. 
it's not as easy to get finance. It's not easy to get as, loans 07. as it was in 07. <laughs> you walk into a bank and say, hey, I make 100K and they get, you get a loan, you get a loan, everybody gets a loan. Right. Um, there's so much compliance and so much red tape and so many laws and so many things we have to check, double check, triple check, quadruple check to make sure that you have the ability to repay the note that it's it's not, you know, we're just not handing out loans to people left and right anymore. Um, obviously, low inventory, really high demand is going to drive prices up regardless of the product. It's basic economics. Oh. It really is. Um, but eventually, I think uh, with the continued increase in pricing and inc- uh, increased continued uh, continued increase in rates, we are eventually going to get to a point of equilibrium, I think, where it will be, you know, the rates may be too high and the prices may be too high for your average person to afford financing. And then things may either slow down or just come to a balance point or maybe drop a little. I don't think so, but I think more than anything, probably just a point of equilibrium where everything was kind of even out. When do you foresee that equilibrium hitting? Like if you had a just guess. Probably in two years. Two years? Yeah. So no no slowing down anytime soon. I don't think so. Yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah. Again, just it, there's low in, there's no inventory. No low inventory and more demand than ever. Yeah, I foresee the demand definitely definitely being tapered off as rates go up, but the supply is still going to be an issue. You mentioned one point that interests me talking about um people not being able to qualify for a home because rates go up and now their DTI has been impacted. So do you foresee an affordability issue continuing to get worse as rates go up because less and less people can afford a home? I mean, if that happens, then, you know, I think there's a good chance the the Fed will step in again and, you know, hit the MBS market and try to get rates down a bit. Um, But, you know, the W-2, average W-2 wage is actually going up. So people are making more money. Um, is it going up enough to counteract the rise in inflation and rates or is it a little bit lower? I think we'll be okay. I mean, again, the rates aren't like astronomically high. Right. You know, they're still even at a four or 5% historically low. Um, you know, there was a time where rates were 16%, 17% and people were still buying homes and loan officers were still closing loans. Um, the counter argument though, to that would be pricing was way different during those times. So if we consider the increase in price versus the increase in rates, we'd kind of have a more accurate picture on affordability. Yeah. And we'd have to do an amortization, you know, calculation to see like, okay, if you buy a house today at a three and a half percent interest rate at 400K, or you buy that same house next year at 425K, but at a you know 4% interest rate, you're going to be paying like 70, 80K more in interest over the life of the loan. So what's more important to you, you know, waiting to see what the market does right? or, you know, hitting, hitting it, hitting the nail on the head while the iron's hot. I don't even know how many phrases I just tied into that. Right. But, you know, it's going to be costing you more money to wait, in my opinion. Yeah. That's sound advice for sure. 100%. I, I do see the affordability issue. And, and I agree. I think the Fed will have to take some action because we can't be a nation of renters. I see like, so 
So I'm on the younger side in that millennial millennial age, and I see a lot of people coming out of college not being able to afford homes and you know being rattled with student debt. And so my my question would be kind of how will we handle that as more and more people are struggling to be able to get into their first home as we move into a increasing interest rate environment? Oh, I mean, that's tough to answer. I mean, who knows? Maybe the government will implement some type of relief programs. Maybe, um, you know, maybe the rates will just get too high and people will stop buying homes and then sellers will go, oh, Investors right. maybe stop yeah, being a part of the market. Too. Right. Well, now maybe we have to drop our prices a little bit to, to sell this, you know, because they're not going to sit on inventory. Right. You know, if we have a, what happens when we have a surplus and low demand? Sell, 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 dump, 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 get rid of, get rid of it, you know? Um, but I, I just, you know, I, I just kind of see more, more of that equilibrium thing happening than anything else. Yeah, I can't really say what would happen if, you know, affordability came into, uh, became an issue. I mean, ultimately, the housing market is the number one and biggest market in our economy. Um, I just don't think that, like I said, like you said, the feds would let it get to that point without stimulating it and making it a little bit easier for people to, you know. Potentially moving into a 0% down program or something to get people into a home with less capital. Yeah, I mean, sure. There's already a few zero percent down options like USDA. Uh, the VA loan for veterans is also zero percent down. Um, there's down payment assistance. There's Florida bond grants, things like that. Um, I, I don't think it's the best bet. You know, like you have to have a little skin in the game mm-hmm. with an investment. Um, it's not going to be optimal for you. It's like add zero percent down. The rates are higher might be additional fees. Um, but, you know, there could be like, you know, like I said earlier, some type of relief program, some type of assistances that come along and and help. Um, but really, I think it's just going to boil down to the Fed coming back in and stimulating the MBS market and, you know, injecting it with a bunch more purchases, bringing the rates down and, you know, making it easier for everyone to start buying again until the economy does better Then they go, okay, we can raise the rates a little bit, which is kind of what they did. You know, when COVID happened and all the investors lost confidence that people were going to be making their mortgage payments because everyone was losing their jobs. So they stopped buying mortgage-backed securities. Well, the Fed's like, "Uh uh-oh, we got to come in now and save that to keep rates low so that it stimulates the economy and things keep on going and, you know, we don't go into the Great Depression again. All right. There's always like checks and balances and making the appropriate adjustments. It's the biggest, it's the biggest market in the economy is it's, it's the, the beating heart of America is the real estate market. When you say it like that, it sounds very important. <laughs> it is. It's huge. It's huge. Like to the point where I, again, you know, I just don't think they would let it happen. They haven't. They haven't thus far. Yeah, that's how, that's how I feel. I mean, his, history repeats itself to some capacity, and and they've always taken care of that. I think. JB dropping blue gems. AG dropping blue gems. New podcast, baby, tune in. We in this thing dropping blue gems.